You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1, if you're not there already. If you're new to our church, our typical rhythm and diet is to open up the Bible, go to a particular book, and go verse by verse through that book, and then when we finish that, we go to another book, and we find ourselves starting Ephesians with uh, chapter 1 this morning. Now, uh, the book of Ephesians has quite a reputation. This little book has had a pretty massive impact. In fact, there's a New Testament scholar and commentator named Klein Snodgrass, which, by the way, if your name is Snodgrass, you have to know what you're talking about. That is, what a name. Klein Snodgrass. You can put the next screen. Snodgrass says, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. (laughs) Don't, Don't undersell us, Klein. The most influential document ever written. Not the Declaration of Independence, not Harry Potter, Ephesians. You know, it's only six chapters, and it's seven pages in my Bible, maybe four or five in yours. It has only 155 verses, and it'll take you only 20 minutes to read it out loud. But this little letter is packed with beauty and power. You know, one scholar calls Ephesians the crown and climax of Paul's theology. The famous reformer, John Calvin, said Ephesians was his favorite book. And more importantly, the famous pastor, Thomas Yoon, the chef I talked about earlier, says Ephesians is his favorite book. That's why we're doing it. There's another scholar named Raymond Brown. He claimed only the book of Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. Another writer refers to Ephesians as the Grand Canyon of Scripture because it is breathtakingly beautiful and apparently inexhaustible to the one who wants to take it in. There's a famous preacher in England named Martin Lloyd-Jones who spent 35 weeks preaching on the first chapter alone. Now, I know I'm going to slow pace. We're just doing two verses this morning, but 35 weeks on one chapter. There must be a lot in there, huh? Why is Ephesians such a big deal? Let me give you six reasons. First reason Ephesians will deepen your understanding of the gospel, the central message of the Christian faith. You know, we live in a day where there's a lot of superficial Christianity, and there's a lot of shallow teaching. And if you go to church today, you're more likely to get a guitar solo than you are solid doctrine. But when you get into Ephesians, you dive into what Paul calls in chapter 3, the unsearchable riches of Christ. There's a gold mine in this book, and you are about to go treasure hunting with me. National treasure, Bible style. And I guess I'm Nicolas Cage. And if you're here and you're new to Christianity, or you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. Did you know Ephesians is a great starting point to understand the central Christian message, the gospel? So it'll deepen your understanding of Christianity and the gospel. Second reason we're going through Ephesians is it will magnify the church in your mind, more than any other book in the New Testament. It magnifies the church more than any other book in the New Testament. 
You know, we also live in a day where people don't really value the church. The church is kind of like what I do if I don't have anything else going on this weekend. If my kid doesn't have a t-ball game or if the, game, the Ravens aren't playing or, you know, if I'm not in Bermuda this week, I'll go to church. But the book of Ephesians gives us a much more comprehensive and vivid vision of what church is supposed to be. We actually see what the church is from God's perspective. And in chapter 2, God calls the church his home, his dwelling place. In chapter 3, 10, it says that through the church, the, God has chosen to make known his manifold wisdom to the heavenly realms. So we're going to understand the church much better and have a much bigger vision of it as we study this book. Third reason we're going through Ephesians is Ephesians may be considered the most contemporary of all the letters. And that is because apart from the mention of slavery, which we'll reach at the end of the book, this book could be written to a modern-day American church. Now, we'll cover the slavery part when we get to it, but this is the most uh, applicable book for somebody picking it up in the 21st century when it comes to the Bible. And this is because Ephesians is not the most situational letter. A lot of the other New Testament epistles were, were written because of a response to circumstances. For example, 1 Corinthians, you know, was written because one of the church members in Corinth was getting freaky with his stepmom. Yeah, you thought the Bible was boring. It's real. Read it. A guy in the church was sleeping with his stepmom, is whacked out, and so Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church to say, Let, let's not do that. <laughs> Let's, let's, let's go with a different plan of action. Remove that guy from the church. In Colossians, uh, Paul writes Colossians in a response to the Colossian heresy. There's a heresy spreading in the church, and so Paul writes that book to correct the church, much like he does in the Corinthian letter. But in Ephesians, there are no freaky stepsons. Thank the Lord. There's no heresy to address. There's no problem to rectify. That's because this book is more reflective than it is corrective. Ephesians is known as a circular letter. And so what that means is that it was read and distributed to churches all around Asia. And so it comes in a really general form to us. And we can read it as if it's written directly to us, a modern-day church. It's very contemporary. And I think you'll find that refreshing and, and helpful as you read it in the following weeks. Fourth reason. We're in this book is because Ephesians will give you grace-filled encouragement. It's been a bit of a tough month for me. Uh, you know, actually, when I first moved to Baltimore, a guy who had been in Baltimore for like 10 years told me, you know, there's a funk in Baltimore City around January, February that ends towards the end of March when spring comes through. There's just like this sadness, this almost seasonal depression that hits our city unlike any other place I've ever been, is what he told me. Maybe it's like the fact that the weather is like a consistency of a teenage girl, like 70 degrees one day, you know, 22 degrees with a 10 degree wind chill the next day. What is going on, Maryland? Make up your mind. You know, maybe it's like I got to keep my kids inside all day when it's freezing cold or, you know, it might be maybe for you too. Like it's always around this time of year when I find out people I really love are moving. You know, Baltimore's a really transient city. You know, and some people they're like, I'm moving. I'm like, Bye. And some people are moving. I'm like, man, like you're my, you're my best friend. You're my close friend. We, we have, we're like family. And, and no shame if you are moving. Sometimes God leads us in a different area. But it's really tough to stay at a place where, you know, living in Baltimore sometimes feels like living in a parade. Because people are always just moving. 
and you're just sitting there saying hi to the next person as they move forward. And on top of that, you know, I had a friend die last month and another friend who committed an affair and was disqualified from the ministry. And um, maybe, maybe for you too, it, it can be, life can be discouraging in the winter months of Baltimore City. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I tend to self-medicate through ice cream. Uh, my cold stone bill is ungodly this month. I'm telling you, that birthday cake remix, that, that joint slaps. <laughs> the way they mix that brownie and the sprinkles. Fun fact, I used to work there in high school. It was miserable. I learned a lot about hard work and depression. Uh, <laughs> but that, that ice cream smacks, right? And so, you know, you have a rough day. You find out a good friend's moving. You got a to-do that's piling up. The kids took forever to go to bed. And what do I do when I'm tired? Let me open up that birthday cake remix. And it's not like it size. It's not love it size. It's definitely not got to have it size. I got the big tub, baby. We're going the whole gallon. And you combine that with some Netflix, that's a great night. Problem is, is that it doesn't really soothe the soul, does it? Birthday cake remix has its limits. Netflix has its limits. And the mo- I, I, I say this with all sincerity. The most encouraging thing in my life right now is the book of Ephesians. I've been reading and studying this book, and it literally has changed my outlook of, of every moment, every day. Sherry knows, my wife knows the days I'm working on my sermon because I come home like running like a little kid, like, Sherry, you've got to read this verse. This is insane. And I, I, I believe that if you will lock in with me and study this book, it'll be birthday cake remix on steroids for your soul. You will be soothed. Soothed, not sued. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, the last thing I need when I come to a gathering like this on a Sunday morning is more to-dos, more burden, more you better show up and perform. And the the book of Ephesians is the opposite of that. Do you know the first three chapters of Ephesians? Again, Paul is writing two churches, two Christians, but the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, you know there are zero commands Paul spends three chapters not telling the church to do anything, but just to believe in what's already been done. He doesn't tell them, you need to do this. He tells them, this is what God has accomplished in the gospel. Therefore, there are zero imperatives, zero commands. And so, for the first couple chapters, we're just going to sit here and soak in what's already been finished for us by God. And it will encourage your soul. And Ephesians is going to reiterate to us what we already know, but so often forget that all of us need grace. We need to be reminded of the gospel, that salvation is God's free gift given in spite of us that we receive. And it's not something we earn. And so here in Ephesus and around Ephesus, what we have is Paul writing to just normal people, writing to churches that are filled with you know, silversmiths and farmers and dock workers and village workers, just ordinary people who need the gospel, just like us. And it will encourage our, our souls. Fifth reason we are going to study this book and it's going to be helpful to us is it's going to revive our hope for a multi-ethnic church and a multi-ethnic community. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King once said that 11 a, one of the shameful tragedies of our nation is that 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. It's so hard to build a multi-ethnic community and a multi-ethnic church. And so a lot of people quit. 
They've stopped trying. And 60 years later, we still live in a society that loves the benefits of diversity without its costs. We love diversity in our food, in our music, in our art, in our travel, but we don't like the cost of diversity in our individual lives. And Ephesians is going to ask us essentially the question, do you love the Mexican immigrant as much as you love his queso? Do you love the black brother or sister next to you who's weeping over uh, the, the, the black plight in America as much as you do Jay-Z music? Are you as, as eager to bring an Asian brother or sister into your home as you are to bring sushi into your home? Do you want just the benefits of diversity? The things that those cultures produce? Or do you want actual diversity in your life? And it's going to cost you something. It's going to at least cost you a comfort. And what happens, and we see this in Ephesians, what happens so often is when we come to gatherings like this one, we often look for the person that looks, looks most like us, someone that we have an instant connection with, somebody who has our skin color, somebody who has our education level, somebody who has our vocation, somebody who has our financial uh, status. And if we don't find someone within that 10-minute window of when we're looking that looks and acts and feels like us, then we go somewhere else looking for that person. We quit easily. And I get it, right? I mean, there's a connection I have when I see a Middle Eastern man that I don't have with anyone else because that Middle Eastern man knows what it's like to be me. I'm a Middle Eastern man. I was in Montgomery County last week, and there are so many Montgomery County Middle Eastern folks. It's ridiculous. Like, there's a... Like, the, the chest hair per capita in Montgomery County <laughs> is off the charts. There's so many Arab people. And so I see Arab people at the gym, or I see Arab people at, you know, at another guy's house. I'm like, Salam alaikum, brother. What's up, my guy? Habibi? You know, like, it's just like this, <laughs> this connection, you know? Like, this guy gets me, right? And maybe you have that with someone in your culture, whatever race or background you have, right? Like, I see a Middle Eastern man, and I know exactly, like, they know what it's like to grow up in America during 9-11. They know what it's like in middle school to be called a terrorist just for being caramel-colored. They know what it's like to have to defend their mother or their, or their sister who's wearing a hijab when they're being discriminated against just for covering their hair. They know that kava is an affront to all Middle Eastern people. <laughs> that it's the Taco Bell of Arabs. And that their hummus is not hummus. Truth will come from this pulpit. <laughs> I'm glad you guys like it, but it's not good for me. <laughs> My Asian brothers and sisters can re relate with this. They know what it's like growing up with Asian parents, you know? Like when you have bad grades. Is there a worse feeling in the world when, a <laughs> when your Middle Eastern father knows you have bad grades? You know, the, the stereotype is that A means average for an Asian family. If you bring home a B, that means below average. C means you can't have dinner. D means don't come home. And F means find a new family. <laughs> so you see, if you're an Asian person seeing an Asian person, you're an Arab person seeing an Arab person, you're a black person seeing a black person, there is an instant connection. But Paul tells us in Ephesians that even if we have nothing surface level in common, we do have instant connection in the church. We are family because we have been united by our big brother, Jesus Christ. 
And Ephesians spends a lot of time talking about reconciliation and unity, two of the key themes in this book, because God wants us to walk into gatherings like this one where there's all kinds of different colors of people, all kinds of different statuses and education levels and vocations, and to not see people who look like me, but to see other lovers of Jesus, other members of my eternal family. And even if I walk in and I don't see anyone like me, I know there are people who I'll share eternity with. You may be a 60-year-old and see this room full of like all young people who are like dabbing, talking about TikTok, whatever young people do nowadays, you know, and you're 60 and you're like, who are these children? And you can say, I'm going to go somewhere else where there's other old people, or like every church in America. Or you can say, these are my brothers and sisters, my much younger brothers and sisters. You know, you could be a, a white person and see a bunch of black people or Asian people and say, I want to go to a church that's more my culture. Or you can choose to say, these are my brothers and sisters and I want to learn about them and know them and invite them into my home and go to their home. Not so they can be periphery, not so they can add status to my life, but because I genuinely love them. You may be wealthy and walk in a room like this and see people below the poverty line and say, that's my brother or sister. That's what Ephesians wants us to get at. And so the message here is that because we have a collective unity in Christ that cannot be shaken, we should be a collective multi-ethnic family. We'll see that throughout the book. Sixth and final reason this is such an important book is because Ephesians is going to give us practical answers to the basic questions about life, particularly the Christian life. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, <clears throat> can I just encourage you to stay? until the end of this book, because it's going to give you really practical, helpful tips in life. Sure, if you're a Christian, you're going to learn a lot about Christianity, but if you're not a Christian, you'll get some practical answers on things like why we should worship, on how to pray, why you need the church, issues like racism that are so prevalent today, classism, individualism. There's practical tips on marriage and dating and singleness. There's help for parenting and your, your work and spiritual warfare. All practical, relevant things for everyone in this room. Fundamental topics Ephesians will cover for us, and so I want to encourage you to be here. Now, this morning, we're not going to get very far. Like I said, two verses. But these two verses are rich, and they'll prepare us for the rest of the weeks that will follow. And if you uh, read any form of ancient letter, like the letter of Ephesians, which was written around 60 AD, every ancient letter follows a similar form. It's the author stating who he is, it's the recipients being named, and then a greeting that follows. And so that's going to be our outline this morning. We'll see the author of the book, we'll see the recipients of the book, and we'll see the greeting that starts the book. I know that's not the most invigorating outline, but promise, I promise it'll be interesting, okay? Let's start with number one, the author, a guy named Paul. Now, who is this guy, Paul? If you know anything about the New Testament, he's quite a big deal, right? If you look back on chapter 9 in the book of Acts, we meet Paul. He's also known as Saul. Paul was his uh, Greek name. Saul was his Hebrew name. And before Paul was a Christian, look at verse 1 of chapter 9 of Acts. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, if he could find any Christians, basically, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this guy, Paul, before he was a Christian, was a one-man wrecking crew, breathing, it says, murderous threats against Christians, trying to bound them and throw them in jail. 
And now he's writing one of the 13 letters he wrote in the New Testament. Paul went from tearing apart families to putting together the Bible. Quite a transformation. And Paul is forever a reminder to us that God can change anyone. You've got a guy who's a religious terrorist. He's the ancient version of Osama bin Laden. He's so bad that the early Christians, when they found out Paul converted, they didn't believe him. They thought he was an undercover spy. I mean, could you imagine someone so wicked that they come to RCC, pray a prayer, receive Christ, and we say, nah, we don't trust you. We're not letting you join. They probably didn't close their eyes when they prayed and Paul was around because Paul might get them while they're praying. The guy they wouldn't let join the church is now writing a book about the church. What grace. You see, Paul didn't just write about grace in Ephesians. He experienced grace. And he says that much in 1 Timothy 1, right? He says, Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. And that God's conversion of me was an example to the world of his grace and patience. And we praise God today for his grace and patience in our lives, don't we? You see, Paul reminds us of this grace when he says, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's the first verse of the letter. Now, when he says he's an apostle, apostle means one who's commissioned, one who's called, one who's sent. Paul has been sent after his conversion by Jesus after his resurrection. Apostle had to have seen the risen Christ. So Paul saw the risen Christ and was sent to speak for Christ. In Ephesians 2.20, Paul's going to say that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles, of which Jesus is the cornerstone. So we have to have Jesus to have the church, and Jesus used the apostles to lay the foundation of our faith. By, they started the early church, they wrote the letters of the New Testament, they filled the world with signs and wonders to verify this gospel message. And Acts 2.42 says the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So that's really what we're doing here right now as we go verse by verse through the book. We're devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We're gathering with a sense of hunger, and we want to hear what God says because when the apostles speak, God speaks. This is why Paul is mentioning his apostleship at the very beginning of the letter, to reiterate the authority of the letter. Ephesians speaking is Jesus speaking, and if you have a problem with Ephesians, then you have a problem with Jesus. And Paul realized almost the ridiculousness of this task. This former terrorist is now an apostle. He says that much in chapter 3 of Ephesians, verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. Almost as he's like, I didn't choose this. I didn't earn this. I was made a minister. According to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, you and I could rightly ask the question, Paul, what right do you have to speak on God's behalf as an apostle? And you know what Paul would say to you? He would say, I have no right at all. Not based on my record. I didn't earn this. But Paul is not an apostle because of his record. He's an apostle because of verse 1, the will of God. Jesus had claimed him, Jesus had corrected him, and Jesus had commissioned him as a visible picture to the world of God's amazing grace. And this is why simultaneously Paul could be the chief of sinners and the chief spokesperson of God in the New Testament. Because it was all God's will, it was all God's grace. 
And this is why Paul was so humble, right? This is what made him so grateful. This is what made him so joyful. And isn't this the same humility we should have? Isn't this the same joy we have? Isn't this the same grateful heart that we have? That the grace Paul received is the grace we receive. There's a preacher named Alistair Begg who says, think about the thief on the cross. Remember the guy who was crucified next to Jesus on Good Friday? That's a guy who a second ago was just cussing Jesus out with his friend. That's a guy who was crucified for a criminal life. This thief had never been to a Bible study. He had never gotten baptized. He had never joined a church. And yet, Jesus says, you're going to make it to heaven. I can just imagine the angels' faces like, what is this guy doing here? I don't see him on our list. How did he get here? And the thief would probably say, I don't know. And the angels would probably ask, on what basis are you here in heaven? (laughs) They might ask, do you know the, the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief would be like, I'm sorry, what? Do you know the doctrine of the scriptures? I have never heard of it. And the angel in heaven would probably be like, as he gets there, how did you get here? What did you do? And the thief on the middle cross would say, on the outside cross would say, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. And if, just think about this for a moment, if you, like Paul, were, were to be appointed to a position of authority for the church, or if you, like Paul, were to get to heaven and you were to be asked by the angels, why should you be let in? If your response is anything in the first person, you have missed the gospel. If you say, because I, because I did this, I should be let in, because I believe that, Because I did that. The only right answer is in the third person. Because he claimed me. Because he commissioned me. Because he called me. Because of him, that's the only reason I'm here. That's the only reason I'm qualified. That's the only reason I have any authority. Do you live with an I pronoun or a he pronoun? And this is a hopeful reminder that if you're here this morning and you're running from God, if you look at your group of friends and you would say, I'm the chief sinner of my friends, you better watch out. Because God loves taking wicked people and turning them into instruments of his grace. Because they know they didn't earn any of it. God loves to draw straight lines with crooked sticks. Do you get the gospel in the way Paul did? So, To summarize, when Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, he means essentially Jesus has, by his grace, called him, commissioned him. And so when we read Ephesians, like we are now, we should remember that the apostle commissioned by King Jesus is speaking to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and his letter, as we read it, should have the same weight for Redemption City Church as it had for the Ephesian church. When somebody stood up in the first century to read the letter of Ephesians to the Ephesian church for the first time, and that authority of God weighed down on the people, it should have that same weight to us as we read it. We gather to sit under this inspired teaching to hear God's word. And I would encourage you, as as we go through the series, perhaps memorize a portion of the book of Ephesians with us. Maybe even a chapter 
And you'll find that there's a greater depth and effect the Word of God will have as you memorize it and know it and recall it right away as you interact in your life. Now that's Paul. And Paul, where's he writing from? He's writing from prison, actually. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says he's a prisoner. At the end of the letter, he also mentions his imprisonment. And in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, again, he's a prisoner. So we get three times Paul saying, as he writes this, I'm a prisoner. And that's because this letter likely came during the end of his two-year imprisonment in Rome, which we read about at the end of Acts. It's about the same time he wrote the book of Colossians and, and Philemon, around 62 A.D., and so Paul is writing this letter, having been changed by the grace of Jesus after having planted a few churches, and he's writing it in prison, chained to a Roman soldier, which is quite impressive, right? I mean, I struggle writing my sermons in Starbucks with a white mocha latte in my hand. Paul's writing the Word of God with Brutus chained to his hand. So that's our author. Who are the recipients of this letter? Paul is writing, if you end in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, again, scholars believe this letter is unique because it's not directed to one particular church, but to all the churches in that region of Ephesus. If you remember the story of the church in Ephesus in Acts 19, there was a lot of opposition in that city. But there was also a lot of opportunities, right? Paul stayed in the city of Ephesus a lot longer than he stayed in any other city during his missionary journeys. He actually stayed in Ephesus three years. And when he left in Acts 20, we find that he's weeping and hugging and kissing the fellow elders and pastors in that city of Ephesus because he deeply cared for those people. So he stayed for a while and developed really close relationships in this city and then left the church to start another one. Now, what do we know about this great city of Ephesus? It was actually one of the fourth or fifth largest cities in the world at the time. It was a lot of diversity, a lot of different types of people groups, and it was actually at the junction of four major roads in the ancient world in Asia Minor. So it was really known as the center of the ancient world. That's probably why Ephesians is known as a circular letter that was shared all throughout Asia Minor, because Ephesus was known as a gateway city, and Paul used it as a gateway for the gospel. Honestly, as we study this, we'll see Ephesus was not unlike Baltimore City a large, very diverse city in a very strategic location. You and I are in the Mid-Atlantic, which is tons of different people who are influential, changing the city, changing the world. And it's very dark. It's very unreached. That's one of the things that made planning in Ephesus so hard was the spiritual darkness of that city. This is a city that was known for addiction, engagement of all kinds of godless activity. In fact, the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was in the city of Ephesus. And that temple was filled with prostitutes. You could hire any day or night of the week. Could you imagine if a city, its biggest attraction was filled with prostitutes? I mean, just imagine with me, like the, the Baltimore Aquarium. There's prostitutes everywhere. Kind of changed the vibe of the aquarium, wouldn't it? Kind of changed the vibe of the city. I don't know if I bring my kids anymore. That's the level of depravity here. Even today, if, you're going to, if you were to go to Ephesus today, you would find an ancient stone, an ancient sign that's carved in it that directs sailors who had just arrived at the port of the city to the brothels in that city. It's a city dominated by sex, immorality, promiscuity. If you thought the red light district in Amsterdam 
Or you know that street in Baltimore near the harbor with all those strip clubs? You thought that was bad. Ephesus was worse. It's also steeped in materialism. In fact, you know, in Acts 19, it tells us that a riot ensued in the city because the gospel was spreading. Unbelievers were starting to worship Jesus, and they stopped worshiping idols, and so they stopped buying these idols that the silversmiths were made, and it was hurting the local economy. And so this town rioted because their money was being threatened. And the city almost killed Paul for it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, that the opposition in Ephesus was so bad that some of the people in Ephesus were like wild beasts. It's quite a claim. So you have this violent city, prone to murder, filled with men that are like wild beasts, centered on greed and sex and idolatry and addiction. And Paul gives three years of his life to this city to plant a new church. Why? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 16. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Opportunities, obstacles. Advantages, adversaries. Paul's like, man, I want to stay in this tough city because there's tons of gospel opportunity here, so I'm going to stay. And I just got to be real with you. I think this kind of on the offense against the darkness of the world, Christianity is so foreign today. I feel like Christians today are more prone to flee the darkness, to flee evil, than they are to enter into it. Maybe you remember a year or two ago, Tucker Carlson on Fox News was talking about Baltimore, and he said, whatever you do, don't go to Baltimore. He said, it's one of the worst places in the Western Hemisphere. And a ton of Christians who are glued to Fox News said, yep, I ain't going there. I tell the Christians all the time, I'm staying away from that godless place. Yeah, of course, I'm going to use Baltimore for its sports teams and its crab cakes and its concerts and its economy, but I would never live here. And as soon as I get in, I'm getting right out as soon as I possibly can. There's crime, there's crowds, there's no parking, the schools are trash, there's paganism everywhere. A lot of Christians only see obstacles and don't see opportunity. You know, today's studies show that lost people, non-Christians, are flocking into the major cities around the world, and churches are flocking away from them. Why do you think that is? It's too expensive. It's too godless. The city's gone. Now, we love our rural, suburban brothers and sisters, but we know God loves people, and there's more people per square inch in cities than anywhere else in the world. And we should be brokenhearted that most church buildings in our city have been turned into apartment buildings. They've been turned into breweries. They've been turned into yoga studios. And the hope of Jesus Christ that was once prevalent on every corner You have to search to find one now. Because a lot of Christians avoid opposition, obstacle, dark places. And if that's you this morning, you would hate hanging out with the Apostle Paul. This man spent three years in Ephesus. He's probably talking to the prostitutes. He's hanging out with the idolatrous silversmiths. He's entering into the center of the city to proclaim the gospel. 
He spent his life in all the toughest places. Probably because he knew how lost he once was. And he had a lot of compassion for other really lost people. This is why Paul gave his life to plant churches in really crowded, secular cities. And do you know the gospel spread so impactfully, so uh, far in Ephesus that it reached the suburbs of the, around Ephesus, it reached the rural areas around Ephesus. And then Acts 19 tells us that because of this church plant in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the gospel. This little church exploded to reach all of Asia. Now, how, how, Paul, what was your strategy? How did you do this? How did you plant this thriving church in such a dark city? Well, tell, Acts 19 tells us Paul went to a little room called the Hall of Tyrannus. He opened up his Bible, and he started preaching. That's how the early church reached dark cities. And you know that's actually how our church reached this city? We came to this little room, opened up our Bibles, and started preaching. And now we're sending teams all around the world from Japan to Towson to go to that city, get a little room, open up the Bible, and start preaching. Because the Word does the work. And Paul writes this letter to this church that's about seven or eight years after it's been planted in Ephesus in a season similar to where we are, right? I mean, we're about five years old. This church is about seven or eight. And the Ephesians are surrounded by secularism and sin. They're, they're actually minorities in their culture. Most people aren't Christians in the city, and I would say that's the same for us. We are, if you're a Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christian in Baltimore, you're a minority. And these Ephesians probably are ready to give up because of all the obstacles, all the wild beasts, all the opposition. Maybe they're ready to move and go on to the Mediterranean and get a house by the sea, eat olives and cheese all day. I'm done with Ephesus. Satan can have that city. And Paul is writing to encourage these people that when you're in a dark place, and just because you're facing opposition, just because they're adversaries, doesn't mean you're outside the will of God. You need to hear this this morning. If you're facing trial today, you might be exactly where you're supposed to be. And if you're going to plant a church or be a part of a church in a dark city like Ephesus or Baltimore, you can expect some wild beasts. You can expect for some strong opposition. You can expect to get more sick here than you did in, in that suburban, comfortable place you came from. You can expect to have more annoyances like car trouble and house trouble than you did anywhere else. You can expect your lost neighbor to cuss you out for, I don't know why, they just were angry. You can expect, like we experienced last Sunday, to hear gunshots during the service a couple blocks from our building. You can expect your share of opposition. We should not be surprised by it. In fact, I remember my first year of marriage, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Sherry, and every marriage has a hard year, at least one hard year. And our hard year was our first year, which is pretty common. And I remember being so shocked by our amount of disagreements and our amount of hard talks. And I remember thinking and saying to her, like, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, we love each other. Why is this so hard? It shouldn't be this hard. You ever have that conversation with somebody, you're parenting or you're, you're married, and you're like, why is this so hard? It shouldn't be this hard. It should be easier, right? Where did you hear that? Who told you it was supposed to be easy? I mean, does a Major League Baseball player step up to the plate and a 100-mile-an-hour fastball comes across the plate and he can't hit it and he says, this shouldn't be this hard. 
There's a great composer, go to write his next symphony, and looks at a blank piece of paper and says, why is this so hard? Then why would you expect that when you're a sinful person, with you've got sin inside you and Satan around you attacking you, that marriage would be easy, that parenting would be easy, that reaching a lost city like Ephesus or Baltimore would be easy. It's supposed to be hard. And I, I don't know about you, but I often have these temptations of like, man, Florida sounds great. Then I meet someone from Florida, I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> you know, Austin, Texas would be awesome. You know, they got Elon Musk. These people won't shut up about barbecue, though, man. Like, you know what I found? I talked to people from Austin. I talked to people from Florida. I talked to people who moved there and lived there, and you know what? Their life's still hard. Just the weather's a little better. And Florida, they got those weird, like, 3 o'clock thunderstorms every day. I don't want that. Anyway. My point is, is, like, we often think the grass is always greener on the other side instead of watering our own grass. And someone steps on our own patch and makes it dirty, and we think, what's wrong? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong. There's somebody trying to trample your garden. And let's remember the pattern of Paul here. Let's take comfort in this pattern. That when we bring the gospel to very hard, lost, secular, dark cities, there are forces of spiritual darkness actively attacking us. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion to devour you. So why would you be surprised when things are hard? We're not surprised and we're not shook because God is sovereign. And his word will do the work, and his gospel will spread, and his church will expand. It will not just survive, it will thrive. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of Jesus Christ is superior over any other demonic force or power in this universe. And did you know that this Ephesian church not only exploded in growth around the region, but it planted at least seven other churches. It became a mother church. A lot of scholars believe that those influential churches in Revelation 1 through 3, you know, like the Church of Philadelphia and Laodicea and others, before they were, went on the deep end a little bit, they were planted by the church in Ephesus. All these influential churches because these Christians stayed faithful where they were. Did you know, can I tell you some of the people that were in the membership role in the church in Ephesus? Apollos, Priscilla and Aquila, the Apostle Paul. Do you know Timothy, 1st, 2nd Timothy, that guy? He pastored in Ephesus. Do you know 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written Ephesus? All of that good fruit came forth because the Christians stuck it out. They didn't let Satan win. They went to the dark places and said, you can't get me out of here, and I'm going to be the light in this dark place. And Paul's writing this to encourage these Ephesians before all that great fruit had come forth yet. Don't abandon a garden that's just getting rooted in soil. He's... Paul meets them in their discouragement. He says in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. That term saints is a, is a term of encouragement to them. It literally means holy ones, set apart ones. It's a phrase that was used in the Old Testament in which God sets apart a people for himself to be his people, a people to be in the world but not of the world. 
a people that will shine a glimpse of his kingdom to the world. Christians are saints, not in the sense that you have it all together, not in the sense that you wear a robe and you're pious and you say like five chants of prayers every hour. Paul has already reiterated to us that we do not have it together, that we on our own record, we are failures. But we're told later in Ephesians 5 that Jesus is the one who has made us saints. Jesus has made us holy. He has cleansed us completely, not just part of our sin, but all of our sin. Therefore, we are his saints. And now what we're trying to do, Paul says, is to become in practice what we already are in position. You are the saints, not the terrible football team in Louisiana. The real saints, the people God has appointed for himself to be his light, to be his set-apart ones in this city. Paul's like, God wants you in Ephesus, saints, so you can shine brightly. These are the saints of Ephesus. We are the saints of Baltimore. And Paul also calls them not just saints, but those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say faithful to Christ Jesus. This is not emphasizing those of you who are doing a great job and Jesus is really proud of you because you got it all together and you're really faithful. No, it's saying those who have positioned themselves in Christ. You are made a Christian not by your faithfulness to Christ, but by your position in Christ, of which faith is the vehicle that puts us in Him. And that faith that God gives you in Christ gives you a oneness with Him, an identity with Him, a union with Him that you share. You and Christ are one. That's actually one of the major themes in Ephesians. Paul mentions our union with Christ at least 36 times. 36 times you need to be reminded that you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, what that means is that Christ's riches are your riches. Christ's resources are your resources. His righteousness is your righteousness. His power is your power. His position is your position. His access is your access. His strength is your strength. Where He is, we are. What He has, we have. We are in Christ, Paul says. If you're a Christian, you are always in two places at once. You are in Baltimore right now, and you are in Christ forever. And no opposition may hit you from every side, like it did for the saints in Ephesus. We are always secure in Him. That is the good news of the gospel. And so let's continue to remember, as His saints, as those who are faithful in Christ, that our identity is in Him. It's not in our performance. Our identity is not in our popularity. It's not in our productivity this week. It's not in our prominence. It's in a person. And it's in a position in Christ. That's where our identity lies. We've seen the author Paul who's just showered with God's grace. We've seen the the recipients of the Ephesians who are in a really hard city. And then finally we see the greeting. Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2. It's actually a typical greeting in one of Paul's letters, but this is interesting. This greeting, in particular, is actually a combination of two languages. The word grace that it starts verse 2 with is actually a twist on their standard Greek greeting, and the word peace is the Hebrew word shalom, which is a standard Jewish greeting. So essentially what Paul is doing is he's combining Greek and Jewish hellos into one greeting, which is odd, right? It'd be kind of be like, 
me saying to you, Assalamu alaikum, konnichiwa. That doesn't make sense. Or if I went up to you and was like, what up? How are you doing, my good sir? This is like those two cultures don't really mesh. What is Paul doing? He's combining two cultures into one hello because he's already planting the seeds of this diverse community being unified into one collective family of Jews and Gentiles. Now, when Paul says grace and peace to you, it's not like he's saying just hello. It's actually more than a greeting. It's more, it's more like a prayer wish. He's saying to the Ephesian church, may grace and peace be multiplied into your life. And remember, these letters were, were made to be read aloud to the corporate gathering, kind of like we're doing right now. And so as the letter arrives to the church in Ephesus, it's almost as if Paul is saying, as you read this letter, and as you understand it more and more, may God's grace and God's peace be multiplied unto you. May it fill your life. Well, that sounds a little ethereal. What does that mean? Well, grace literally means unmerited favor, unearned favor. Grace is to feel completely accepted as you are right now. And wouldn't that be nice? Because the world doesn't accept you as you are. Culture insists your value comes from your physical body and how good it looks. Or your title. Or your wealth. Or your connections. But none of those things, even though they're not bad in and of themselves, are secure enough to give you satisfaction. And the grace Paul is talking about here means we have a much more secure secure source of value. A source that is not based on what we achieve, but simply through who we already are. Do you know when Jesus was baptized in the Gospels, before he started his earthly ministry, before he did anything significant for God, as he's being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends, the clouds part, and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And grace, what it means at its very core is that God looks at you before you did or were anything, and he says, this is my beloved daughter, this is my beloved Son, not for what you've done, but for who you already are, my saint in Christ. Grace is that feeling that you are delighted in. You have earned God's smile through Jesus right now. Wouldn't that be nice to know the only opinion in the world already loves you? That's grace. And then peace. Peace means literally well-being. It means satisfaction. It means wholeness. You know what it means? It means to be able to sit on your couch today and do nothing and feel completely content. I'm saying you should do that, but you could do that. It means having nothing to prove to anybody. In a world that's trying to show everybody there's somebody, a Christian has already been proven there's somebody through Christ. That's where a peace comes from. Can I ask you, honest question, what would your life look like if you had absolutely nothing to prove to anybody? How often would you go to the gym? What would you post on social media? How would you work at work? Peace means I have nothing to prove to anybody because the only opinion that matters already loves me. 
Isn't that what everyone wants? Grace, unmerited favor, and peace, shalom, contentment, just being able to be. You know, even the best human beings in our society, our heroes, don't have that grace and peace. You know, the tennis legend, Andre Agassi, he was never able to find that grace and peace. In fact, in his biography, he says what drove him to succeed was not a love for tennis, but a desire to win the acceptance and satisfaction of his hard-to-please dad. He wanted grace and peace, and he sought it through tennis and his dad. But even when Andre Agassi won the Grand Slam at Wimbledon in 92, his dad's first response after he won was, you had no business losing that fourth set. One of the best to ever do it never got the grace and peace he desired. And he ended up saying in his biography, I play tennis for a living even though I hate tennis. With a dark, secret passion, I've always hated it. You see, you can seek that kind of unmerited favor and shalom, contentment, peace through your vocation, through your family, through your friends, through your money, through your connections, through your entertainment, and you will never receive it to your heart's desire. Or you'll get it to a degree small enough that won't satisfy you, and you'll begin to resent what you used to seek that grace and peace in the first place, like Andre Agassi resented tennis. Or Brooks Kepka resents golf. If you watch that Netflix full swing documentary, which is baller, by the way. And Paul starts Ephesians by saying, the grace and peace every human being longs for flows from twin source of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ this morning, you don't need to seek grace and peace, you have it. You have already experienced all the grace you need on the cross. And because we have already received God's grace and we are accepted in His sight, you are His saint, you are His Holy One, and therefore, when you know His grace, it leads to experiencing His peace. Because when you know your biggest problem, your sin has already been conquered, all the other lesser problems don't seem as big a deal, do they? And I don't have to worry about my future because I know my future is going to be pretty good. It's got some pearly gates, and it's got a king who's in charge who makes all things new. Paul's desire is that these twin blessings, as we read Ephesians, of grace and peace, would be understood and experienced in greater measure in our lives. And the same way Paul begins the letter is how he ends it. He says in the last verse of Ephesians, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Peace, grace, maybe a little love sprinkled in. You know, the Christian life looks a lot like Ephesians. It starts with a lot of grace, leads to peace, and it ends with a lot of grace and leads to peace. And the same thing that sustains us in Ephesians sustains us in the Christian life. His grace, His peace. And so as we finish today and begin this journey through Ephesians, my prayer is that our grace and peace would expound. And as we look at the author, Paul, who received much grace despite his sin, we revel in the reality that that same grace is ours in Jesus. And this will humble us. This will fill us with joy. In fact, if you look at the first two verses of Ephesians, you'll notice Paul says Jesus' name three times for every time he says 
Paul's name one time. And that starts to happen when you get grace. You start saying Jesus' name three times for every time you say your name. And we've seen also, secondly, the recipients, the Ephesians. They were in a hard city, but they didn't quit, and God brought forth fruit eventually. And the powers of good will overcome the powers of evil. And we've seen the greeting, grace and peace, that unmerited favor and the shalom of God will resound in your life the more and more you understand the truth in this book. And so my prayer to you, friend, is that that grace and that peace will be multiplied in your life, that you would feel God's warm smile on you today. Let's pray and let's begin this journey in the coming months. Lord Jesus, I pray for the folks in this room right now. I pray for the employee who's feeling anxious about work tomorrow, feeling the need to show up and and prove themselves to somebody. God, through the gospel, may their peace resound in your life. May they know that you already accept them and love them, and they could totally royally screw it up next week, and they are still in Christ positionally, and nothing can change that. I pray for the tired parent or the exhausted spouse. May your grace and peace be multiplied into their soul. May the the love and acceptance they've already received in Christ flow out of them into their spouse, into their children, even when it's hard. I pray for the single person here this morning who's looking for the grace and peace that perhaps a relationship can provide, but I pray that they would turn to Christ and find that only in Him, that they are accepted not by if they're married or who they're married to, they're accepted by the finished work of Jesus. I pray for all the different types of people in our church, the diverse people groups in our church. May we be a collective family like Ephesians asked us to be, full of grace and peace under our great big brother, Jesus Christ, until we come home with him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church Podcast.